Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I'm your host, and for today's episode, a satirical look at the history of English literature through a biography. Yes, that was vague, I know, but this week's novel is actually quite tough to pin down. Virginia Woolf's 1928 novel, Orlando, A Biography. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments. Something to highlight from the week past, and today, my struggles with the sheer breadth of the world and the sheer lack of time to see it all. Again, (laughs) very, very vague, but this week I wrote this little piece while out for a walk, and uh, like, yeah, I'll just read it. There is something wonderful about walking the same path. In fact, I would go so far as to say it was one of life's great indulgences. One of my greatest struggles with life... My greatest issue with its design is the sheer lack of time against the size of it all. I have seen things and yet I haven't seen them. I have now lived in London for a winter, but what face would it wear in spring, summer and autumn? I am back walking through the graveyard with thoughts of familiarity guiding me comfortingly. I could have, maybe even should have used my day off to explore somewhere new. But how can I move on when I have not seen all that there is where I am? I have run this place in the rain, walked it under the sun, and today artists paint their own views of it. There is something conciliatory about acceptance. I have to accept that I cannot see the whole world, so I have to see all that I can in a depth that warrants my time. So as you can see, it's it's kind of just a passage uh, I thought of while I was out, like I said, walking a cemetery. It was really nice. I mean, all these artists were there. It must have been some kind of art club or something like this. I'm not sure. But they're all just painting different graves, and they're all using different colours. They're all making it really colourful, and London this time of year, as uh, it depends when you're listening to this, but this is currently April, is is such a colourful city, you know, everything's coming into bloom, we're heading into summer, so it was lovely to be out walking in the sunshine in the cemetery again. So housekeeping as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website, just in case you know of anyone who has hearing hearing impairments who might get a kick out of a written version of the pods, so head along there. They are all free to use, so enjoy them. And now on with the show. Virginia Woolf is one of the greatest modernist writers, which is quite a thing to say when you consider the arsenal of writers that were around during this time. But Woolf is particularly modernist, which can be fun, but it also can be quite difficult and it can be just downright outrageous. And this novel, Orlando, is a perfect example. I came away from this book shaking my head in disbelief, wondering what I had just read, confused if there was even a distinct story running through, or if it was just a narrative of her writing to fill. And yet this novel, this brilliant piece of literature, had some of the best writing I think I have ever read. But, you know, a little uh, more on that later. Now maybe a brief overview for the novel just so we can all follow along, and for this novel it's pretty straightforward in a manner of speaking. The book follows the eponymous figure Orlando, who is a poet that lives for centuries, interacting with key figures throughout their time. Now, while living for centuries might seem the most fantastically odd part of this novel, it isn't, because at the halfway point Orlando goes to sleep one night a male, 
and wakes up the next morning a female. So there is that aspect as well, but largely it's a simple story as Orlando breezes through life. And I think that's a solid way to give it an overview for this novel because it's it's a weird one, but it's a fun one. So first, uh, maybe some historical background to Virginia herself and, of course, the novel in, in, in essence. Virginia Woolf herself's most famous novel is Mrs. Dalloway, and I'm sure you've all heard of that, and rightly so because that book is a banger. Maybe I should actually do a pot on that. Okay, I'm adding that to the list. Something to consider. But Mrs. Dalloway is really good. So I actually hadn't heard much about Orlando, to be honest. And when I say not that much, what I really mean to say is I had never heard of it. I'm not sure why, but it had never come up in the literary circles. And my only reason for this is that Mrs. Dalloway must just be shining so bright that all of Wolfe's other work is in the shadows slightly. I don't know. Let, let me know if you agree or not. I know Virginia produced quite a few books, and I saw one the other day that looked also really promising, The Waves. Has anyone read that? So I don't know. Maybe I'll check that as well and see what I think of it, and maybe there might be an episode on that. It's all chaos over here today. Uh, But Orlando, what a novel. Virginia said that this novel was inspired from her friend Vita Sackville West. They had a romantic and sexual relationship for a decade and a friendship that lasted much longer. And I think that's what's so wonderful about this relationship between two women is that it directly influenced such a rich story but also that we have a direct reference to this influence in Virginia's diaries. So this is just an entry from her diary on the 5th of October 1927. She writes, And instantly the usual exciting devices enter my mind, a biography beginning in the year 1500 and continuing to the present day called Orlando, Vita, only with a change about from one sex to the other. So it's a rare thing in literature to capture sort of the moment of conception, especially for a novel considering novels are often... I guess, pieced together over time through a series of experiences that are often almost unnoticed by the author until it sort of comes together. And it's the same idea that it's difficult to know when you're making a core memory, but it's only when you're sort of past it, when you're looking back, do you understand how influential a moment was and where it led you to. That's why I think this is so great to have like a really concentrated moment that Virginia recognized and actually seized. So the stage is set, the inspiration from a friend and a lover converted into a biography of this wonderfully elusive character, Orlando. Fictive character as well, I should say. What happens from here? Then the novel is set in a very linear manner. At the beginning of the story, Orlando is a man, or rather, I should probably say a teenager, serving as a page boy at Elizabethan court. Time goes on, ironically, and at around the age of 30, Orlando undergoes a change of sex, and then she now goes on to live for another 300 years, hence the ironic comment about time going on. Along the way, Orlando interacts with many different characters, and that is sort of one of the wonderful aspects of this novel, is that it has so many historical staples that you can point to and get your bearings from. But I think one of the most remarkable things about this story is how unfussed I actually was with the unfolding of the storyline itself. Once it has been established that the story is not as straightforward as you might think, the story itself for me took the back seat. To that point, when Orlando's sex does change rather quite out of the blue, I was actually very unfazed. I had no idea it was coming, but there is something remarkably comforting about Virginia's writing style that just kind of tucks you in and all anxiety about developments are accepted as almost gospel. So as I've said, she, it's, this novel had some of the best passages I think I've ever written in, ever written, God, I wish I'd written the bloody hell, ever read in literature. And I've got this one passage here, which is probably my favorite in the novel. And like I'm saying, like one of my favorite in literature. I apologize for its length, but 
I'm not actually that sorry because, as I said, it's one of the best I think I've ever read. And it goes like this. Actually, I should probably give a bit of background. So there's Vlando, of course. He's still a man at this stage. And he is dating a woman called Sasha, who is a Russian princess. And they are currently in London during what is known as the Great Freeze. And this, like the Thames is frozen over. It's, it's incredibly cold at this point. And the passage goes, All ends in death, Orlando would say, sitting upright on the ice. But Sasha, who after all had no English blood in her, but was from Russia where the sunsets are longer, the dawns less sudden, and sentences often left unfinished from doubt as to how best to end them. Sasha stared at him, perhaps sneered at him, for he must have seemed a child to her and said nothing. But at length the ice grew cold beneath them, which she disliked, so pulling him to his feet again she talked so enchantingly, so wittily, so wisely, but unfortunately always in French, which notoriously loses its flavour in translation, that he forgot the frozen waters or night coming, or the old woman or whatever it was, and would try to tell her, plunging and splashing amongst a thousand images which had gone stale as the woman who had inspired them, what she was like. Snow, cream, marble, cherries, alabaster, golden wire. None of these. She was like a fox or an olive tree, like the waves of the sea when you look down upon them from a height, like an emerald, like the sun on a green hill which is yet clouded, like nothing he had seen or known in England. Ransack the languages as he might, words failed him. He wanted another landscape and another tongue. English was too frank, too candid, too honeyed a speech for Sasha, for in all she said, however open she seemed and voluptuous, there was something hidden. In all she did, however daring, there was something concealed. So the green flame seems hidden in the emerald, or the sun prisoned in a hill. The clearness was only outward, within was a wandering flame. It came, it went. She never shone with the steady beam of an Englishwoman. Here, however, remembering the Lady Margaret and her petticoats, Orlando ran wild in his transports and swept her over the ice faster, faster, vowing that he would chase the flame, dive for the gem, and so on and so on, the words coming into the pants of his breath with the passion of a poet whose poetry is half-pressed out of him by pain. Wow, okay, holy, holy moly. Again, I apologise for its length, but this novel is just filled with poetic passages like that. I mean ransack the languages as he might. Oh, what an image. What an image that conveys. A man ripping and searching through languages so he can find the right words to define what he's talking about. The rise and fall of the passage, the careful movements, the cadence, if I manage to do it any kind of justice. If someone ever asks how important punctuation is, show them this passage because the words are the players, but the punctuation is the coach guiding the words through it all. Guys, come on, punctuation, the unsung hero of literature, am I right? No. Okay, well, moving on. That's the language, wrapped up and blended with poetry. But another wonderfully rich thread to this novel is the continuous working on Orlando's poem, The Oak Tree, and the reoccurring theme is the struggle to capture the beauty which creates a kind of fun duality between Orlando's struggles to produce something tangibly beautiful through the poem against Virginia's own poetic prose. Virginia very competently sums up this struggle with art and writing, as Virginia herself writes that, Green in nature is one thing, green in literature another. Nature and all letters seem to have a natural antipathy. Bring them together and they tear each other to pieces. I mean, there's this vagueness to the whole novel, and it's like as soon as you start to have any inkling of being lost, Virginia just comes in with the sharpest of sentences that reacquaint you, and yet, I mean, 
I was never really sure what I was being reacquainted to. Now I would be interested to hear if anyone else found this equally comforting or maybe depressing, the idea of working on one piece of art and the frustrations of the beauty in your mind unable to be effectively translated into the physical of sorts. But I found it comforting. This poem that travels with Orlando through the ages, that they constantly work on and it evolves and updates around them with every twist and turn that life has to offer. So yeah, I found it kind of like really comforting. There is almost like a beautiful acceptance in it. Orlando could finish it, I guess, or rather abandon it, but instead they choose to hold it, to cherish it, to have it as almost a companion through their turbulent life. And it is a turbulent life, notably for that famous shift in gender that that occurs at the halfway through point. Such a dramatic shift, such a crazy and fantastically insane shift that Virginia basically doesn't even touch upon as to why, instead relying upon the beauty of her language to submit the reader into a willing and accepting state to go along with it. Virginia does imply that it is a Romani witch who is responsible for the change, whom Orlando is married to and living with at this, at this stage in the novel, and it is actually the Romani people who are first to accept this change. Now, I didn't see the change coming, and yet I didn't pause at it either. She just has this kind of sweeping narrative style that handles it with such grace and honesty that you become curious. And from there, Virginia explores the wonderful, playful insights of the duality between man and woman and how interlinked they actually are. It's almost curious because while Virginia does write about how genders are interlinked, there is also that sense of defined gender roles. I've got two quotes here. The first one talks about how genders appear in society. And Virginia writes that, The difference between the sexes is happily one of great profundity. Clothes are but a symbol of something hid deep beneath. It was a change in Orlando herself that dictated her choice of a woman's dress and a woman's sex. And perhaps in this, she was only expressing rather more openly than usual, openness indeed was the soul of her nature, something that happens to most people without being thus plainly expressed. For here again we come to a dilemma. Different though the sexes are, they intermix. In every human being, a vacillation from one sex to another takes place, and often it is only the clothes that keep the male or female likeness, while underneath... The sex is the very opposite of what is above. And what it does is it creates this wonderful exploration of gender. This this novel sort of shifts to this wonderful exploration of gender identity and what that actually means. And from these passages, it's clear that Virginia was a keen observer of human life because she manages to elicit such a detail from human life. In this next quote, Orlando begins to see and understand the position of the sexes. And Virginia writes, she, sorry, that's Orlando, She remembered how, as a young man, she had insisted that women must be obedient, chaste, scented, and exquisitely apparelled. Now I shall have to pay in my own person for these desires, she reflected, for women are not, judging by my own short experience of the sex, obedient, chaste, scented, and exquisitely apparelled by nature. They can only attain these graces without which they may enjoy none of the delights of life, but the most tedious discipline. It's curious. Orlando is happy to participate in society rather than try recreating it. She is happy to be a cog in the wheel in a sense, understanding that the gender roles are almost a game we play with each other. Though also, Orlando often says she longs to be back with the Romani people for their acceptance, but never goes. I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing because, well, I mean, it's always greener on the other side, right? So as we get to the end of discussing the novel, you're probably left wondering what was it all about And I think the meaning is wrapped up in the poem that Orlando constantly works on, the oak tree. Over time, it has chopped and changed, been sad and solemn and happy and playful, 
but importantly, it's separate from sex and gender. It has always registered Orlando as a poet. It's the constant in Orlando's life and who they really are. A poet. So that was Virginia Woolf's Orlando. So what would I rate this? For me, it's an easy 4.2. It's a must-read for literature lovers, as I've said many times throughout the episode. It is some of the best passages I've read, and I, I don't want to read it anytime soon, but I can't wait to read it again if that makes any kind of sense. So what am I reading this week? This week I am reading Nothing But The Night, which is a novella by John Williams, and it's about a young man who gets a letter from his estranged father, and this sends him into a bit of a spiral. I love stories like this, novellas and and books and everything, because they all, all the events happen within a day, and I think there is something wonderfully grand about that, and I don't know, I've always loved stories like this, a big adventure in one day or night. Like complex stories all contained within one adventure. I love it, it's fun, and it kind of gives you hope about what you can achieve in one day of your own life. So yeah, I'm about halfway through. Might be good enough for a little app. I don't know yet. It's John Williams though, so you know, there's Augustus, there's Tona, they're both pretty good, so we'll see. Now, before I close out the show, if you've listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. Well, I think it's time to end this episode. So today, to take us away, a bit of Franz Kafka. Don't bend. Don't water it down. Don't try and make it logical. Don't edit your own soul according to the fashion. Rather, follow your most intense obsessions mercilessly. 